Hey guys, James Intracasso here. Before we begin the podcast, I wanted to let you know about something really cool we're cooking up over here. It's called The Tome Show Presents The Roundtable's Tarask Takedown 2014, colon, Mike Shea Out for Blood. On Sunday, September 21st at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, live via Google Plus Hangout and on YouTube, Mike Shea of SlyFlourish.com will DM roundtable panelists Joe Lestowski, Topher Cohen, Chris Dudley, and myself in a D&D 5th edition level 20 one-shot against nasty legendary creatures culminating in an epic clash against that baddest of the baddies, the Tarask. We wanted to see how high-level play worked in the new edition, and this seemed to be the most fun way to do it. So, come check it out live on Sunday, September 21st at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, or find it later at youtube.com slash director of shield. That's youtube.com slash director of shield. All this information will be in the show notes on thetomeshow.com. Okay, let's start the podcast. Hello, and welcome to Gamer to Gamer. I'm your host, James Intracasso. This is a podcast where I interview pros in the gaming industry about their careers and the games they love to play. Today's guest is the one and only Wolfgang Bauer of Cobalt Press. He's worked on all sorts of great D&D and Pathfinder projects, amongst other games that you've heard of. Most recently, he put out a little adventure called Horde of the Dragon Queen. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the links in the show notes for this episode or any other, and then shop as you normally would. I'd also like to thank our sponsor for this podcast, noblenight.com, where Out of Print is available again. They have D&D and other tabletop RPGs. Any edition, any product. With Noble Knight, you can even sell them back your old gaming products you aren't using anymore. Let's hear a quick word from them. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, even Saturday. Noble Knight is a brick-and-mortar game store. Support small businesses that also exists online. Open 24-7 on the web. They have D&D and other cool RPGs. Any edition, any game. In out of print products and at a discounted price that's out of control have a bunch of old game products collecting dust dangerous allergens noble light will buy the old stuff you aren't using anymore looking at you indiana jones rpg so go to noblenight.com and get by it and sell it take back your life and tell them the tone show sent you all right, guys, I'm here with Wolfgang Bauer of Cobalt Press, and you're going to hear his long-storied career, and we're also going to talk to him about the games that he likes to play. So, Wolfgang, take us all the way back to the first time you laid hands on a tabletop RPG. What was it, and what did you play? Well, you know, I kind of crept in through a board game mm. which led me to a tabletop. So I actually started playing sort of in the fantasy space with the dungeon board game, ah. which was the orc and pie of its time, right? It was 
Um, it was very simple. You played different characters. They would go kick monster butt. They would open treasure chests, kind of like Monopoly cards. And, <laughs> and you know, that was all there was to it. And I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. They had it, believe it or not, at my junior high school library. Uh, the librarians got used to, you know, when I and a couple of my buddies were coming down the hall, they were like, oh, okay, we know they're taking a table. They're going to play that dungeon thing. <laughs> um, and not too long after that, I saw the blue box for D&D uh, at a local hobby shop and said, that is pretty awesome. I'm putting that on my Christmas list. i got to mow some lawns. i got to find some way to get my hands on that thing. Um, and in this sort of early period of whatever it was, like the late 70s, um, you know, hobby shops were pretty different. They carried all sorts of wacky stuff. They carried RPGs and needlepoint and, uh, you know, paint by numbers was very big then. Oh yeah. Uh, and there wasn't a whole lot of D and D stuff to carry. So they had like the beginner box and then it was like straight on to, Oh man, I think it was steading of the hill giant chief or something. Oh wow. Something wildly inappropriate as a, you know, Hey, let's play this module first. And, <laughs> <laughs> experience um but that's what was available right so it's like okay we'll play that and then later it was like oh hamlet hey that would have been a lot easier to start with village of hamlet right um <laughs> but you know i was fairly limited at this point in my gaming career by like where could i get to on a bicycle right mm -hmm. that was whatever 12 13 um i had to be able to get get over there on my bike and uh, and find a place. And there were two or three such hobby shops, and they all carried just a tiny amount of stuff. But they did carry Dragon Magazine and Dungeon Magazine uh, in print. Ah. Monthly. <laughs> oh, my God, a monthly dose, right? Because you couldn't count on TSR to deliver a new gaming product every month. Madness. That would never happen, right? <laughs> uh, so it was really a different time. But the magazines were sort of a lifeline of, of like, get a hit of good gaming stuff. And I, I look around now and it's like, man, there's PDF publishers and websites and just, you know, a cornucopia of gaming stuff. I'm, I'm kind of amazed that I stuck with it over summers of, like, yeah, we found a thing. And, oh, look, you know, Dungeon Magazine 45 is out. Woo! <laughs> um, or, no, Dragon 45, I would have. But, you know, that that was what we had, and we played the heck out of it, and we made up our own stuff. And it was me and a couple of kids down at the the local library, and it was all weird enough at that point that a, a reporter quizzed me about it for the local newspaper. Really? If you, yeah, if you remember newspapers. Yeah, <laughs> I, had a, I had a really... I had a horrible quote in there, man. I go back and I look at that. I, you know, of course, my mother has saved all this stuff in her scrapbook. But I said something like, yeah, we like playing. And I do most of the work because I'm the dungeon master and I make up all this stuff. I have to prep things. Right? <laughs> it came across really resentful. It's like, but no, that's not what I meant. I meant, well, yeah, I do a little more work, but we all have fun, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, of course, the newspaper went with, hmm, yeah, this guy thinks he's like the top dog of this little gaming club of whatever. But he was trying to explain what the hell is this weird thing that kids everywhere are playing. It was the height of the D&D &D boom with, like, cartoons and lunch meats and 
D&D <laughs> pajamas. You think I'm kidding about the lunch meats, but I confirmed it recently. I asked Frank Menser about it. He said, yeah, there were, there were licensed food products. There, so there was licensed D&D lunch meat? Like I could get D&D bologna? Yeah, it was like orc-shaped bologna or something. <laughs> Mr. Menser was not terribly clear on the details but he did say yes there was such a license and uh it lasted probably a summer or a year right (laughs) (laughs) who wants to eat orc lunch meat but if it had been available in the local freezer you know if i had seen it i would have told my mom yeah of course duh blue dragon deli meats give me that (laughs) whatever it was so um you know i I rag on the late 70s, early 80s as there weren't a lot of products and we we played what we had. But at the same time, everybody knew about it. People were curious about it. And man, there was a lot of weird, there were coloring books, you name it, right? There weren't as many things to license, I guess, back then. So people were licensing anything they could that they thought kids would buy. Yep. I mean, there were some action figures and there were stickers D stickers that tony detrelisi dug up recently on facebook i'm like holy cow how did i miss the bullet rust monster roper sticker man i want to put roper stickers all over my like trapper keepers <laughs> and so that was like the start and i played and i i drew up you know heraldic devices for all the npcs and nations because hey the greyhawk gazetteer has these shields and heraldry and so that's part of D&D. I guess I should do some of that. And that was fun. Um, there was a lot of do-it-yourself, right? Right. Uh, and I, I've stumbled through some of my old notes occasionally because apparently all of that stuff gets stored uh, in an attic somewhere in the Midwest. And, uh, and it's like, oh, yeah, I remember these maps. Oh. Um, it was long hours of like world building and being an introvert. And then it was like, once or twice a week, it's like we're gaming for eight hours, and um, you know, don't stay up, parents. We'll be we'll be down here <laughs> in the in the den uh, playing D anD D, and it was it was a blast. Uh, the guys I played with then uh, have all gone in different directions. We don't play, uh, we don't keep up a lot, except you know, occasionally on Facebook, I'll see something from them. But that was good times. Yeah, you know, you're making me nostalgic for my first gaming group as well. And you would do that thing where you would just stay up all night on a Friday or a Saturday in a basement, a den, wherever, an attic, and just yep. game, you know? Those, those were the days, and now... Well, you could do a lot in a 12-hour gaming session. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And I, I think some of that's just, you know, youth and energy and enthusiasm. Uh, and some of that's like, okay, don't have a job, don't have kids, <laughs> don't have a mortgage. Um, and and so, of course, it's always a golden era. I mean, somebody said of science fiction, right, the, uh, the golden age of science fiction is 12. Mm. Um, because whatever you're reading at that certain time, when you kind of hit puberty or you're just exploring the fantastic imaginative worlds, the stuff you're exposed to first makes a huge impression. And for me, that was, you know, classic blue box D&D and... AD&D first edition, all the hardbacks came out pretty quick, and I snapped them up, and they were awesome. You know, by the time I hit high school, I was like, I know all this stuff, and my vocabulary is ridiculous because, you know, I have to know what words like puissant and, you know, glaive guisarm mean. And (laughs) my players are going to ask, an encumbrance? Yeah, sure, come on, that's an easy one. So... 
<laughs> um, yeah, all that stuff that, that people say about role-playing games, like encouraging you to learn some math and, and better your vocabulary, all true. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it really does teach you a lot, and it's, I, I think it does help with things like improvisation, public speaking, you know, not being afraid to put yourself out there in some ways, because, hey, if you've acted yeah, like a gnome, I, you know. I gotta say, it really, it, it gave me social confidence among my friends, but, you know, put me in front of, like, public speaking or a classroom, <laughs> and I was still pretty, pretty deeply an introvert at the time, right, even in high school. But at some point in high school, I decided to try out for the school play. Mm. Uh, and I, I attribute a lot of my success there in getting the role as the villain to... Um, <laughs> uh, Great to role for a DM. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Experience as a game master and being willing to like project your voice and ham it up. So, um, no, that was a big, big deal for me sort of socially in high school. But, um, but it was, I can draw the line directly back to D&D. Sure, my my game group now is all guys that I did theater with in college, so it you know it, it makes sense. I think you see a lot of gamers make that leap sometimes in high school or college to yep. the theater world. So yep. you got to make another leap from being a amateur gamer to being a professional gamer. At yeah. what point did you start to think, yeah, this is what I want to do, I think maybe for a living, and how did you find a career in that? How did you grab that, you know, brass ring that so many people want to grab i don't think it was initially anything as as thought out as hey i want a career in gaming it was more like eh, it was back to the magazines again right it was like oh look they've launched this thing called dungeon adventures well what is this Ooh, tons of adventures for not much money yay um so i read it and subscribed and eventually realized hey they're asking for submissions for this magazine i bet i could write up one of mine right right sort of the, the classic moment of uh this this month's issue isn't very good i bet i can do better <laughs> and and you know it's still being the dark ages it was uh get out the sheet of paper put it in the typewriter type up a letter saying i want to write this short adventure for you guys what do you think i followed all the guidelines and, you know, put it in the mail and waited. Um, and I, I can't remember who must have read it, probably Barbara Young or Roger Moore. But they wrote back uh, in the same fashion on paper with a stamp. <laughs> and, yeah, all of this stuff dates me horribly. <laughs> but, I mean, <laughs> that was sort of the, the thing of it. And they wrote back and said, hey, this sounds great. Send it to us. Ooh. And uh, so I wrote up a short adventure with, uh, I believe it was... I believe it was called Ship of Night, and there were Darrow, and it was the Underdark, and there was weird contraptions and strange mutant plants, and I had a good time writing it, and then I realized in the, the disclaimer form that I needed a parental signature, because I was like 15 at the time, <laughs> and I had, to, I had to get parental permission to sign over the copyright to TSR, right, or, or to, to submit it as a minor, Mm -hmm. um, so you can see, you know, at that age, I'm like, yeah, this will be cool and I'll be published. I was really in it for the, for the fun and the fame and thinking, wouldn't it be cool to be published? Not, yeah, that's, you know, this is the first step up the rung to a career in gaming. <laughs> um, it wasn't thought through that way, but you know, I sent it off and a couple months later they said, yay, we like it. We'll print it. 
And I was like, that is amazing. Wow, they're going to pay me for this, right? Um, and I signed the contract, mailed those back, and I had the parents sign it, all that. And, and that was my first publication. I was very excited about it. It took months. I thought forever for it to appear in print. But it finally did, and then I you know, wrote a few more for Dungeon. But that was basically my high school like gaming break into the business was three, maybe three or four adventures in Dungeon Magazine, um, which is, you know, a number. I seem to be doing well for my age, but then I hit college, and I was like, I'm kind of busy here. Mm -hmm. um, and I wrote a few other freelance pieces, but I, I didn't really pursue it as, like, I got to get in with these guys. I got to be a freelancer. I was, I was pretty up on my studies getting a degree um and it was in the second edition era that my game master at the time steve cart said hey i hear tsr's hiring haven't you done some stuff for them you should send in a resume huh. and i was like well i don't know i'm pursuing a graduate degree here steve and we're all having fun gaming but you know you know what are the odds right i sent in a resume they're, they're not really i mean some college kid, they've got some high-powered New York editor, writer. They'll get somebody with experience. What was yeah. your graduate degree in? It was in biochemistry cell and uh, molecular biology. Whoa. <laughs> That's different. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Well, no, it's pretty standard for game designers. Bruce Cordell did some chemistry. A uh, number of uh, <laughs> Jeff Grubb's degree is in civil engineering. Um, you'd be surprised at how many techies, right? have this uh this weird uh side where they do game design as well so i'm i'm not the only game designer with a, a technical degree but yeah biochemistry was my thing i did genetic engineering i manipulated fruit flies um i i did photosynthesis experiments oh my gosh uh, <laughs> yeah no i harvested algae in a centrifuge it was great experience for one of my first projects at TSR, or one of my later projects at TSR, which was a, a campaign setting called Chromosome with a K. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. I was like, oh, my God, I get to take all of my love of cyberpunk and all of my love of biochemistry and turn it into a campaign setting full of mutants and tech. <laughs> um, and I, I wrote the heck out of it, and I think it got a, it got a nod. What did it get? I think it got nominated for an Origins Award. It didn't win, but I was still pretty happy. Yeah, yeah. So, so what yeah. happens when you apply for the job then? Uh, apparently they hire you because they say, man, this guy's already written four pretty awesome adventures for us. <laughs> as long as he's like not a complete, like, total introvert, right, we'll, we'll bring him out for lunch, right? Mm -hmm. This is what they told me later. They said, we'll, we'll bring him by the offices and we'll interview him. And, you know, it's a junior editorial position. We don't, we're going to train him up anyway. But we need it to be somebody who's, like, polite <laughs> or, or, or at least, you know, sociable around the office a little bit. So, basically, they, they did an interview. They asked me a bunch of questions. I, you know, told them everything I knew about rules and writing and English and what little I knew about magazines at the time. And uh, they mostly were trying to figure out is this guy going to be any fun to hang around with? So, you know, what they th were interviewing for and what I thought I was being quizzed on were really two separate topics. Mm. Um, but apparently I was polite enough and had been well-raised. Um, 
<laughs> they said, yeah, he'll be fine. And, you know, they said, here, read the slush pile. They hired me for a salary which by, uh, well, by biochemistry standards, let me say, the salary was very, very modest. Mm -hmm. But I was doing what I loved. I got to read the slush pile. I got to work on the magazines. Um, and I was taught everything you'd want to know about editing by people like Kim Mohan, right? Right. Was, the editor of Dragon Magazine and much of its golden age, um, and continued to be the editor for D&D for an incredibly long period. He was the editor on third edition D&D too, right? The lead editor there. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's like, okay, if I'm going to be taught by a powerhouse like Kim Mohan, and if Roger Moore is down the hall, and, you know, Barbara Young is my immediate manager, and she's the person I was writing to all the time for Dungeon Magazine assignments... Yeah, okay, this is a good place to be. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, once you're inside the building, you see how the magic is made, and uh, you get to meet people whose names you've seen on module covers, and I was I was thrilled to, to get a few freelance things for Al-Kadim and Planescape, and to work with people like Zeb Cook, uh, and Jeff Grubb, and Jim Ward. Um, and yeah, at that point, I was like, okay, full on um the salary is nothing but i'm learning a ton and i'm having a great time and i'm, I'm getting opportunities to write um because you know i was an editor in the periodicals department still not technically a game designer but um but they needed freelancers all the time because there just weren't enough staff people to to put stuff through the pipeline fast enough in the second edition D, &D days um it'd be the early 90s and yeah, I just honed my skills and wrote better and better. And al was a wonderful playground, and so was Planescape. And working with um, just really sharp, inventive people um, made it easy to, to work ridiculous hours and, and put out the best things possible. Yeah, and it sounds like that was a really great time for you because you got to work on all of these things. You were rubbing shoulders and learning from some of the best in the biz at that point. Yeah, and absolutely. I have to say, you make it sound like getting a career in gaming is very easy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I confess I was very lucky, right? Having done a few things for the periodicals was nice. Mm -hmm. um, but as it happened, they had a crying need for additional staff at that time because they were launching Game World's you know, not every week, but pretty darn often. Uh, and at the same month I was hired, the same week I was hired, um, they hired three other people who all have, you know, long, good histories in gaming. I mean, Rich Baker was hired exactly the same time I was. Wow. And, you know, he did Birthright and a million other things. Yeah. And Thomas Reed, who went on <laughs> to write novels um, and had a ton of greats. And John Ratliff, who... Um, may not be known as much for his gaming credits as for his Lord of the Rings credits because he wrote something called The History of the Hobbit mm -hmm. and is like the world's greatest authority on uh, The Hobbit. And he just knows The Lord of the Rings backwards and forwards. So, you know, that was the class of uh, designers and editors I was hired with and, and they needed help at that time. So, Wow. That's incredible. So you're at TSR, you're there at a great time, Rich Baker's coming in, you've got all these other people, you know, Roger Moore, who you're you're talking to and you're you're learning from. What happens when TSR makes the uh, you know, gets becomes acquired by Wizards of the Coast? You know, I missed the whole thing. I was out. <laughs> well, here's what happened, right? I, I had done really well at the periodicals and over time 
um, I had moved up from reading the slush pile and, you know, lowest minion on the totem pole to, hey, I'm the editor of Dragon Magazine. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> this is my show now. I get to run it. And I went to my manager at the time and I said, this is great. I love Dragon. This is wonderful. I really feel like things are going really well for me. Um, however, for the past few years, you know, I've not been doing so well financially and I want to, like, you know, provide for a family and, and I have all these expenses and uh, what does it take to get a raise here is basically what I said. Right. And the response was, oh, that's not going to happen. Oh. Right? And what I didn't know, of course, was the company was in a bunch of trouble already. This was a year before the acquisition, but they were already not doing so well financially. So it was it was a pretty flat, like, you're not going to see a raise ever. Mm. Um, and no and it... Yeah, it kind of put me on notice of, well, creatively and, and like in a lot of ways I'm doing great here, but I'm still feeling like an impoverished college student, right? Even though I'm, I'm a senior editor now. So I was like, well, huh, I wonder what I should do. And it was maybe at that point when I had my first like gaming career-based thought, which was, I wonder if there are other companies where I could do better, mm. right? And, and I didn't. I didn't think of the gaming world beyond TSR, really. I mean, I knew there was White Wolf. I knew this little upstart Wizards of the Coast thing seemed to be taken off like mad. And, you know, FASA was in Chicago doing Shadowrun. And there were things, but I'd never considered that maybe I could go there and do something. Mm -hmm. So um, it happened. I got an offer at, at Wizards of the Coast. Jonathan Tweet wanted to hire me to help out with some things. Uh, and I took the offer, and I said goodbye to TSR a year before they were acquired, and went to Wizards <laughs> in Seattle. <laughs> and oh my goodness, it could not be more night and day than like the TSR of that period and the Wizards of that period, because the companies were completely unlike um, culturally. Yeah. Oh God, in just about every way. <laughs> I mean, TSR. <laughs> TSR was a long-established company at that point, right? They'd been around for 20 years, and they knew how to ship books, and they had a, a you know, they had a system to like make things happen, um, and guidelines and processes, and here's how we go about pitching a new product line, um, and here's you know an org chart, things like that, right? Mm-hmm. I mean. It makes it sound more bureaucratic than the place actually was. It was still a very creative and inventive place. But it was a place where the creativity, they knew how to channel it to say, okay, here's how we're going to make Birthright, right? It's going to be a box set. I'm going to do this, this, and this. By the time I got to Wizards, they had been like running for, you know, on, on Magic the Gathering, uh, uh, you know, the insane rocket boost that was collectible cards oh yeah Um, it was insane i was nuts i remember collecting those cards huge boxes just box after box after box of cards my brother and i had and we were part of the boom you know exactly it was like 1995 i show up there and they're like well um i don't have a desk for you (laughs) (laughs) do you mind sitting in the hall for a while and I was like, oh, my God. I have, you know, picked up stakes. I have left the Midwest and my family behind. I have come out to Seattle. And these people don't even have a desk, right? <laughs> it's like, right? And then, the, you know, it was – they had money, but they didn't have anything nailed down, right? So they, 
hard to do things other than magic, right? Like they launched other card games and I still had a role-playing game division that was doing uh, titles that are perhaps not remembered very much, but which were, you know, um, which were their hope to, to keep a foot in the role-playing space. And they were hoping to do some board games and Robo Rally was happening. And it's like, okay, all of this stuff is going on. And I asked somebody, you know, who's in charge and how does this get decided and who do I apply to? And they're like, yeah, no, we, that's not how things work here. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was a company that was probably very similar to what TSR might've been like in about 1976. Right. Mm. Uh, or 1980 when they were just booming like mad. And yeah, the question was just, how do we, how do we keep it going? So anyway, I, <laughs> <laughs> I was working for Jonathan Tweed, who I knew from his work on, on, uh, Ars Magica and White Wolf things and, you know, well-known RPG designer. And he was working on Everway at the time. And he said, I need some help with these other things over here. Um, and I was part of a team that was trying to turn Magic the Gathering into an RPG. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. No, I didn't just show up to say I, I work on anything. I had a particular project in mind. but But when it came time to, like, ask so what's the spec and how many pages and what are our components and all of the things that would have been ironed out and written in memos and documents and tsr all of that was very loose right it's like well you're the designers right you guys work on it and let us know when you're ready for us to test it <laughs> wow um, <laughs> yeah it was like it was a level of blank check that i was not used to it's like well what about the milestones what are my first milestones uh, you make up some and let us know, right? I mean, that was <laughs> really so. And we gave it our best shot, and we created a an RPG for Magic. And um, looking back on it, it wasn't very good. It's like we we were super ambitious in what we wanted it to be. We wanted it to cover a lot of ground. Uh, we wanted it to be super accessible to people. Mm-hmm. Um, but like our core mechanic had to be card based Uh, and we were all sort of dice chuckers at heart and you know we worked like mad on this thing and it i don't know it didn't gel and i'm in retrospect i'm sort of glad it got spiked although at the time i was like damn it (laughs) i should publish this so it was a it was a case where it wasn't just set in the world of Magic the Gathering. They wanted you to use actual Magic cards. To oh be no no no! They would, they weren't going to be Magic cards. They were going to be RPG cards for a game mm, okay. set in yeah, the world of. But you know there were going to be five colors and there were going to be certain similarities, right? Right. Um, and this was pretty early on in the world building for Magic. I mean, this was around Fallen Empires. Oh wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so it wasn't like there was a fully realized yeah, world Bible. No, there was no such thing, right? Right. Uh, there weren't a lot of novels. Like Ice Age was starting to tell a story. But but it wasn't quite at the point where where it got to in later years where you could say, oh, okay, I understand the world. I understand Planeswalkers. and um and who the characters are and those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, it was, I mean, it was one of my big disappointments as a game designer is that that project didn't fly. 
later on I learned that they tried this three times with uh. three different groups of designers, <laughs> and they've never published a magic RPG, right? No, no, not that so I So it... <laughs> It may have been a task that wasn't possible to deliver on in any way that the company wanted to publish. Um, but at least in those early days, I was like, okay, we're going to give this a shot. Uh, and I did that for a few years. I worked on the card games. I worked on Netrunner and Battletech and some of the dual system stuff. Um, and even did some like web-based alternate reality gaming. Uh, yeah. It was a place where you could just sort of pitch something to pretty much anyone. And at that early stage, if someone said, let's do a puzzle game online on this thing called the web, it'll be a perfect promotion for Netrunner. Somebody might say, yeah, that's a great <laughs> idea. You know, take some art and uh, uh, one of these webmasters and we'll go to town on that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so those sorts of opportunities... And it was just a matter of formulating them and presenting them to someone who would say, yeah, go do it. Um, and I think I also broadened my horizons tremendously. I mean, working with Jonathan Tweed, uh, yeah, it's hard to overstate how influential it is to like talk to people who've, well, you know, <laughs> to have Richard Garfield down the hall and say, <laughs> that's the level you're being held to, right? That's the standard. Mm -hmm. um, it's like, Really? Okay. <laughs> Overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. Time to up my game. Uh, and, and I continued to write um, you know, a number of things, but then the, the, when the TSR acquisition came, I was able to say, well, I've been here for a year, guys, and let me tell you, it's different. Um, and, and the nice thing, I think one of the unrecognized things that the TSR acquisition brought is, is it brought people with some experience like managing creatives and managing a game design process uh. and managing, managing a publishing workflow. I mean, as, as dull as it sounds, just getting cards printed, shipped and everything else is like, you know, there's ways to do it well and ways to do it poorly. And, um, and Wizards of the Coast quickly mastered it, right? Uh, because they had to. And TSR brought even further expertise and refinement. And how do we do this? Yeah. So um, they got a they got a lot of creative staff. They got a lot of editorial staff, and they got some like people who can ship it. Um. So yeah, I was happy to see all my friends from TSR show up in Seattle, and be able to say this is a good company. They're doing good work, and we could probably help them out in this, that, and the other way. Right, right. So that's great. You guys get TSR, you bring them in, and you're able to help out Wizards. It sort of sounds like it's it's good for Wizards that they bring all these people on. Obviously, the license they acquire through TSR is a big deal for them as well. Sure. So do you get to start working on D&D &D as soon as they acquire TSR? No, you know, I did some, but uh, I was pretty much out the door mm -hmm. by the time they were really kicking off on 3rd edition. Um, I, left, I left Wizards of the Coast in 1999 right. for a job back in the tech field. Um, so... You know, that, I don't know. I don't know if it was burnout or if it was like 
the magic game had crashed and burned and I'm like frustrated. But I mean, the way I remember it is I was looking at my friends who were working various software and hardware companies around Seattle and said, you know, that stuff is all booming in 1999. There's a tech boom and they need writers and they need editors and they need people who are uh, technically savvy or proficient, but who can actually communicate. And so I became a tech writer and tech editor in the software biz for a while. And, you know, it was one of those tough deals where you say, I really love wizards and I love gaming. But clearly this is turning into a card game company and their RPG stuff is great, but I've done about what I'm going to do. So so I'm done. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was gaming with people who weren't in the industry anymore. It's like, okay, we're going to play D&D or Call of Cthulhu or we're going to play, you know, Quake. We're going to set up a <laughs> LAN party after work here because we've all got crazy great machines, right? <laughs> It's like I played an awful lot of Quake after hours. <laughs> um, or, or you know, the like. Uh, but it was it was a time where it's like, I'm not actually working in the industry. I can freelance stuff like mad when I feel like it. But there's no pressure. I mean, the nice – everybody thinks if you're a staff designer, you've got a job inside a games company, you're set. But at a certain level of burnout, it is kind of normal. Um, sure. and, and I think I'd maybe hit it, right? I'd had about 10 years in the business at that point. I just said, you know, I'm doing something else. Um, so yeah, kept gaming, kept writing, freelancing. Um, but it was a way slower rhythm of like creative output. I wasn't, I wasn't putting out like new game titles and I wasn't submitting that much to, to Dungeon or Dragon. I can see my... My track record there from like 2000 to 2004, 5, 6, you know, it's five, six years where it's like I did not spend a ton of creative thought on game design. I wrote some cool adventures and blogged about stuff and recharged and thought more about software, right? Yep. So then what happens? So then, in the way of things, well, sort of in the way of, you know, sometimes you think you're done with a certain gaming and then you're not, I'd been thinking to myself, you know, third edition's done really well for years, and my old friend Monty from TSR seems to be self-publishing up a storm. Man, he's doing great stuff. And I wrote a piece for Monty. I wrote something called The Book of Roguish Luck for him, mm-hmm. um, which was in the same series as like the Book of uh, Lordly Might and the look, uh, Book of Arc. I mean, he did a whole series, right, for every class, every core class. And I said, well, what if I self-published something? And I put something up on my, my blog, and I said, nah, I kind of want to publish this adventure. I want to write a D&D third edition adventure. But I'd like it not just to be text. I'd like to have, like, art, mm-hmm. a cover maybe. And maybe I could pay an editor or someone to draw some maps because I can't draw maps really well. So I'm putting up this tip jar, and if people like the idea, I will self-publish an adventure. And you guys can be my patrons. 
And and I went to sleep, and the next morning it's like, woo, 80 bucks in the tip jar. I bet that's enough for a cover, right? <laughs> it was like I had no idea what anything cost. <laughs> because, I mean, up until that point in my design career, it's like I turn over a manuscript and somebody else magically turns it into a book or a module or anything, right? Right. Um, and I knew enough to know that, okay, well, text comes in and an editor kind of needs to fix it up because I'd done that, you know, hundreds of times for right. magazines. I'm like, okay, I need an editor and I need some art and a mapper. But like the actual, how does it all go together? I was making it up as I went along. And that, that first adventure was called Steam and Brass. It was published in a really limited edition for like 50 people maybe <laughs> who backed it. Um, you know, 20 of whom were my friends in gaming and five of whom were my current play group, Call of Cthulhu, right? <laughs> um, so, but it was enough for me to say, hey, okay, people care. I can do one of these. And, and, uh, and I learned how to do it just by doing it. Mm-hmm. And people volunteered to help with layout and so on. And at that point, really, to some degree, it's like, okay, I'm self-publishing, but I'm also learning just how to be a publisher, period. Because I wrote several more adventures in that patron-backed, crowd-funded style from uh, 2006 on. Um, but I also started asking other people to write stuff, right? Because um, I didn't want to write everything. Um, and I had other writers whose work I really liked. So I said, why don't you write the next one? And Nicholas Logue, uh, who's done a ton of Pathfinder work, um, wrote one of the early projects, like the third or fourth project was a, a sort of Jekyll and Hyde story he wrote. Wow. Yeah. Uh, again, in a limited edition, uh, you know, my wife did the calligraphy for the, the title, uh, logo treatment. And, you know, I was starting to make connections among artists and the layout got a little better and a little better, but that was sort of, yeah, that was the start of Cobalt Press and, uh, and publishing a wide variety of things for D&D uh, and then for Pathfinder and 4th Edition and Call of Cthulhu and 13th Age, now 5th Edition, right? So at some point in there, people realized that I was still sort of obsessing about adventures and asked me to write something for 5th Edition. So That's right. You know, I think there's a certain certain theme, a certain like going back to the adventure writing well where I started that's just continued over time. Um, I like core rules. I love setting. But as far as I'm concerned, the Greyhawk uh, people had it right. You know, you define your setting by putting out new adventures, right? That's the way you really define the world. That's what people play. Um you don't need box sets full of maps and handouts necessarily. You you need good adventures. So yeah, uh, and that's who you are now, right? You're it, you're sort of known in the industry as the guy who can write a killer adventure. And uh, well, sometimes <laughs> see, I, what I think I really am is the guy who's willing to try different wacky kinds of adventures. Mm-hmm. Some of which are new and original and wonderful, and some of which are like. 
yeah, I see what he was trying to do there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have I to mean, tell the, you, I do love Horde of the Dragon Queen, uh, your you know your latest fifth edition adventure that just came out. It is well, thank you. I, I love it. It's deadly. It's a great um, you know showcase. I think of the new rules, but it's also got some really fun elements that as as a dm it's free form but there's enough structure there that you feel like you have a safety net when you're improving. it's just it's yep. amazing i really love it well that was very much where we were trying to go with it uh steve winter is my co-writer on that and uh we're both of the school that you know not every encounter is balanced uh mm-hmm. people should be allowed to get themselves into deep deep trouble and try to get back out um and you should trust the game master to try and make sure it's fun for everyone. And you should trust the players not to do anything. Com- well, maybe you don't trust the players not to do anything completely stupid because sometimes they will. <laughs> but but trust them enough to like when they're put in the tough spot, they will they will figure out a way to get themselves back out of it. Yeah, yeah. That's and and this adventure is great for that, and it's great to see people get sh- shaken up by that. You know, like oh, this is different, and it's it's wonderful <laughs> and refreshing. Let's the talk whole about- edition is is about that, right? I mean, fifth edition <laughs> is about shaking things up and and making it dangerous. Yep. You know? Yeah, in a great way. In a great way. Let's talk about your game, Wolfgang. What do you play? And sure. when you do play, are you a, a GM or a PC? Well, uh, I would have said up until a few years ago that I'm almost always the GM, but I've played, well, since the TSR days, I've played with a regular Call of Cthulhu group that has mutated over, you know, 15 years, 20 years to include lots of different people, but I'm almost always a player in Call of Cthulhu. I love that. Um, Characters are very disposable, but we have a, a great time. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I am about to go back on the other side and and take up the keeper's screen uh, with a new bunch of investigators. I backed a Kickstarter called Horror on the Orient Express, which, as it happens, was the first adventure I ever played in Call of Cthulhu. Zeb Cook was the game master for that. (laughs) (laughs) So the bar was set there, uh, and my, you know, I've been playing Cthulhu ever since. I'm going to run Horror on the Orient Express as soon as it ships uh, from that Kickstarter. I'm really looking forward to having a great old time with that. Uh, So that's the next one I'm prepping to run. Uh, In terms of playing, uh, I've played a lot of 5th edition in the last year and a half. (laughs) The whole playtest has been delightful, even though the rules keep shifting a little, little, little. We uh, we kept up with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steve Winner was the game master for that group, um, so you know he uh, represents the the dungeon master side for Horde of the Dragon Queen, and I I maybe stumped a little for uh, the player side of things. <laughs> and um, who did you? What did you play? What race? What class? Uh, you know, I played a human cleric and um, who survived. Uh, quite a long while <laughs> um we we lost barbarians we lost druids we lost all sorts of things but it's like eh, i'm a cleric everybody's looking out for me right <laughs> they need um, the box of band-aids that's for they sure. need the box of band-aids and it turned out to be we we had sort of a an undead heavy mega dungeon that we were crawling through so uh, all the anti-undead was good and having a you know backup fighter is good so I enjoyed, I mean, I've 
some people say clerics, not that interesting. I've always found that they're as interesting as you care to make them, mm-hmm. uh, just like any other character, uh, and had a great time with the new system. Uh, so, yeah, a ton of 5th edition. I really am kind of looking forward to running 5th edition yes. um, soon. It seems... Um, it seems odd that, you know, I've done design for it without really having gotten to run it, even though I've seen so much playtime with it. Sure. Um, but that's sort of the way this works sometimes. It's like, well, <laughs> <laughs> Steve already started with the playtest before I did, so he called dibs on being the DM. <laughs> Do you um, prefer to, to be the DM when you're, uh, you know, I, sitting at the table? I used to. I used to prefer it as part of just a general lack of control freakness now that I'm like letting go of that to some degree. Um, I think I think you can have a great time on either side of the screen, but it's probably healthy for both players to take a turn in the hot seat as DM to see what that's like, right? Yep. Uh, and for DMs to occasionally venture out from behind the screen and realize, oh, you know, the mysteries are a lot harder from over here, right? Oh, the clues aren't that obvious. I always thought it was so clear, right? And, uh-huh. and treasure's really important when I'm a player. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's easy to forget, like, the, the sort of foundational things of, like, well, what is the player experience like if you've spent two or three or five or ten years as a, as a game master and then, you know, you, you may lose touch with... <laughs> <laughs> the other the other role so i think it's healthy for both sides to see that and and i tend to hop back and forth from time to time now yeah i agree i would love to get some of my players on the other side of the dm screen and and for me to take a turn as a pc because i think it would be good for them to see and be good for me to get back in the player's chair you know yep you get a different perspective they certainly probably wind up with more respect for how much there is to juggle right <laughs> And it's yeah. like, man, people keep asking me questions. I don't know. <laughs> and man, that guy's a real rules lawyer. Why is he bothering me? Right? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I'm super fortunate to play with a group of people that are uh, almost all in the role-playing games industry or spent years in it, right? Mm-hmm. So they're all incredibly excellent players. Um, yeah. Not everybody is quite that lucky. <laughs> Uh, sometimes, you know, there's only one game in town, but I don't know. I think everybody can do a little better. Sure. Well, my group, even though they're not a uh, professional RPG guys, we have been playing for a long time and they are all solid guys, but it certainly yeah. would help to have the perspective switch. I think sometimes. So yeah, well see if you can talk somebody into running a one shot, like a Halloween game or, uh, or, uh, I don't know. See if, see if they'll take the bait. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think I definitely will. When you uh, when you run your fifth edition games, do you think you're going to run the Cobalt Press Adventures, or do you think you're going to run something else? And do you think you'll use any house rules? Oh yeah, you know that is an excellent question. I suspect I would probably run. Wow, so many <laughs> choices. I might run one that I'm really fond of and that I've already got under third and fourth edition. It's called Courts of the Shadow Fae. Oh, yeah. And it's um it's just a blast. I 
I hesitate to give too much away. There's a big reveal in the middle, but um, but the thing about it is, I think it would adapt well to fifth edition because it has some big combat sequences and it also has um, some sections that are way more exploratory, investigative, that sort of thing. And and getting a new group in there might be fun. Um, mm-hmm. But generally, I mean, I I only have so much time to play, and there's a lot of possible adventures. It's also possible that I'm going to take, uh, well, I know for a fact, I'm going to take uh, an intro sort of adventure called The Raven's Call that I wrote for Pathfinder a while ago. I'm going to turn that into a freebie for 5th edition. Ooh. Yeah, and Cobalt Press will put that out sometime this winter. Um, it's it's fairly it's a sandbox adventure where there's a village that needs help. I mean, you see smoke on the horizon, and the heroes need to figure out what's burning. <laughs> um, and man, I just love that adventure partly because different groups get such different reactions to it. I mean, when I say sandbox, it's really like. Yeah, things are all messed up here. Um, <laughs> and there is no one path to fix it. Um, so I ran it for my nieces and a couple of their friends a year ago. And, you know, these were all kids from like 10 to 13 years of age, somewhere around the age I was when I first started playing. Right. And they were thrilled to be, oh, hey, an elf wizard and a fighter with a sword. Really? All right. I can hit people with this, right? I mean, it was all brand new to them. But the moment they realized, hey, people are in trouble, they all like click to, well, we got we to do something. What do we do? Wow. And that was sort of the moment where I said, you know, there is something to a sandbox. You don't need to like run a railroad through this scenario for it to work. No. You just need the bad guy to be really kind of horrifying <laughs> and for people to be, you know, and for there to be some kind of stakes. And so I think it will work really well as a uh, as a fifth edition piece, and uh, and actually Steve is is helping me get that put together. So we'll we'll see how that goes. Cool. So if you guys want more from the masters, you will see that coming out soon. And speaking of stuff that's coming up, what else is coming up for you guys? Well, um, you know we've been talking about fifth edition, but it's not like Cobalt Press didn't make its bones on Pathfinder. That's right. Um, we got a big, big piece coming. Um, it's a Kickstarter called Southlands, and it's basically pulp adventure at its finest. It is my love of uh, lost cities, uh, abandoned tombs, um, Egyptian, uh, you know, white ape cults, you name it, um, put together as, as both a setting book and a bunch of options in tropical and subtropical kind of places, right? So, yeah, and it, frankly, I'm I'm going back to my Al Qadim roots with this a lot. It's <laughs> like a big Arabic chunk of this. I think it's going to be awesome. I we've been writing it for months now. There's a ton of like awesome new monsters and lost cities that are ripe for exploration, and I'm kind of curious whether people are going to love it as much as I love it or whether people are going to say, you know, Pathfinder just did that whole mummy's mask thing or Al-Kadim, Arabic adventure. I don't know. Right? I'm I'm never sure what the reaction is before a Kickstarter goes live, but I'm loving it. The art is awesome. The writing is great. 
um, I'm hoping other people love it too. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, I know that they had talked about it at some of the Gen Con panels that Jeff Greiner recorded for the Tome Show. Yeah. And it just sounds awesome. I, I love the pulpiness of it. You know, I mean, we're going to offer people gnolls as a player race. We're going to have, you know, weird Egyptian style dwarves. We're going to have gods walk the earth and have pyramids to loot. We're going to have the tomb of the elephant god. I mean, <laughs> we're, we're basically doubling down on, you know, what makes some of that kind of adventure just classic fun. Um, so, yeah, I've got a couple of writers I'm super excited about. Mike Schell has said he's going to write a piece for us. He wrote The Mud Sorcerer's Tomb for Dungeon way back when, and mm-hmm. he's awesome. Jim Groves is doing a piece in sort of an Arabian style. He's done so much for Pathfinder. Um you know, Jeff Grubb, we're reprinting a Jeff Grubb piece, bringing that up to date. Um, yeah, I, I have just, I can't even shut up about it. I will talk your ear <laughs> off about it. The, the only things that, you know, are still questions about it are like, well, so do we convert any of this for 5th edition? What if there were a license? Uh, no, let's stick to Pathfinder. Oh, maybe we should do some freebies for 5th edition. And, you know, and sometimes you just don't know till you launch whether people will will care about that or whether they'll say we're going to steal all your maps and your scenarios and it's easy to convert to fifth right right? yeah and that's true and it's also i mean you may have already seen but uh, we don't know a lot about the the wizard's license yet right we're not sure what it's going to look like if it's going to be closer to the third hopefully it sounds like or if it's going to be more like the gsl which was not so great not so great yeah i did yeah, I did about two things with the GSL and then no more. Uh, yeah. You know, they've announced that they're going to announce something later. That's pretty much what we know, right? Right. So, um, yeah, and when they when they let us know, that would be great. But in the meantime, <laughs> I'm sort of chugging ahead with this Southlands project. It should launch in mid-September, mid to late. Um, and I think... People who love like Solomon Kane or uh, Conan on the Black Coast or, um, you know, the Hidden Shrine of Tomoachan, those are the kind of touchstones I'm looking at for this. Oh, and that's good stuff. That's that stuff you want to hear. I mean, it sounds like it's it's going to be that sort of Conan style adventure, you know. Absolutely, right? Indiana I mean, Jones. It sounds great. You know, at one point we we asked, could we do a red line going across a map in our video? And <laughs> we seriously thought about it. We had it like, should we do that? And we're like, yeah, that's cool, and we love indie, but but does that actually tell anybody what our is about so we finally said no we're not going to put the red line across the map but (laughs) but it is yeah that's that's the inspiration right it's like uh yeah you throw me the idol i throw you the whip is is there's going to be pits full of snakes absolutely that's amazing i really can't wait for this to come out so if people want to check that out it sounds like there's going to be is it going to be a kickstarter that's going to launch it will it will be a cobalt press kickstarter you can actually follow the cobalt press kickstarter feed 
Uh, there's a newsletter we do. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Oh, we will tell everyone. <laughs> we will try to tell everyone. You know how obnoxious people get when they have a Kickstarter? We're going to try not to be totally that obnoxious, but we're going to be about one notch less than the worst possible case ever. <laughs> we want to tell everyone, right? Um, and that'll be that'll be coming out in a few weeks. That's right. Well, and these guys know how to run a successful Kickstarter. Just look at the uh, Deep Magic Kickstarter. Yes. To, that to was our biggest to date, almost 2,000 backers, um, which made me so happy because it about tripled or quadrupled the biggest number of backers we'd ever had. I mean, we'd done 18 crowdfunded projects by that point. Oh. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what you can do in about eight years. <laughs> and and it, something about Deep Magic, whether it was the art or the premise of a great big book of spells or or just the fact that we'd been around and Kickstarter was taken off, but man, people jumped on it and it made it possible for us to work with, you know, Ed Greenwood and Margaret Weiss and Jason Bullman and um, just, oh, and Brom did some art for it. Oh my God, Kickstarter is so powerful and so wonderful. Uh, I can't say enough good things. And there was, uh, that book is great. That book was, uh, it's clear that all of the money went into great production with that book getting those great people to make spells for it just super fun spells new cantrips new you know interesting you know the cantrips are one of the things i'm proudest of i know it sounds ridiculous right everyone's why ninth level spells are where it's at i'm like designing a good cantrip is hard right (laughs) you know you don't have a lot of margin on a cantrip. <laughs> uh, and most of the you know, obvious effects, it's like, well, they're usually already available as first-level spells. So, I mean, the fact that we got about 15 new cantrips in there, and people write emails saying, you know, we had a lot of fun with that slap cantrip. I love that cantrip. <laughs> love that cantrip. <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds like something out of the Three Stooges, but... Oh come on! Our gaming groups have all occasionally devolved into, you know, I cast slap on that guy. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's good fun. Uh, a lot of really useful spells. A lot of really flavorful stuff. Richard Petz, Rakshasa magic is really great. Um, Carlos Oval did a section on dragon magic that is can't be beat. And uh, yeah, it, it turned out spectacularly. And we even did a set of Hero Lab files that shipped about a month ago. So it's fully supported. That's amazing. All right, Wolfgang, uh, I have taken up enough of your time, but I certainly hope that you will come back on because I, there's so many, much more I want to ask you. I want to ask you how you juggle your day. I want to know more about your gaming groups and stuff. So please sure. come back. Um, Absolutely. I'll talk your ear off about Horror on the Orient Express or I'll talk about what a schedule looks like for game designers. But that's, you know... Those are all long <laughs> conversations. Invite me back anytime. I love your show. Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much. So where can people find you and check out your stuff? Uh, the most obvious place is koboldpress.com, which is just our blog and our, our web store. Um, but we're also, Cobalt Press is on Facebook. It's on Twitter. You can find me. I've got multiple accounts uh, as Monkey King on Twitter. Um <laughs> And and there's a newsletter that I recommend to people because it's where we give everybody the heads up and we really don't have time to spam you more than once a month. It's called the Cobalt Courier. You can sign up for it at the very bottom of the page at coboltpress.com. That's great. And guys, 
if you want to get that newsletter, I highly recommend it because it's not just the stuff Cobalt Press is doing. It's also interesting things that are happening in the industry. Oh, yeah. We love pointing out other people doing cool projects or the good reporting, like that piece on Gary Gygax losing control of TSR that went through the press a while ago, mm-hmm. that historical bit. Uh, we've done Warhammer cosplay reports. We've done everything. <laughs> Well, Wolfgang Bauer, thanks for being on Gamer to Gamer today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Guys, if you have a question or comment about the show, you can reach out to me on Twitter at James Intracasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Or you can go to the Tome Show's website, thetomeshow.com, and leave us a comment there. And a quick shameless plug for me, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age. It's the 5th edition campaign setting I'm building. It's at worldbuilderblog.me. Okay, thanks for listening, and thanks to Wolfgang Bauer for being on the show. Also, many thanks to Jeff Greiner and everyone at The Tome Show. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. And remember, life is a game. Eventually, you gotta roll a 20.